long before I started Potstir Podcast, I became an avid listener of podcasts. Having listened to podcasts for well over 10 years, probably closer to 15, ever since I first got an iPod Nano. I'm sure that brings you guys back. What I enjoyed about podcasts then, and still do, is that pretty much any subject you're into, there's a podcast for it. When I first started listening to podcasts, I was mainly into the How Stuff Works podcasts and the Dan Carlin podcasts. As far as Dan Carlin goes, I started out listening to Hardcore History. His release schedule is not exactly prolific, but when he does come out with an episode, each of them is several hours long and packed with information, and he tends to cover a subject in several episodes. He always makes the disclaimer that he is not a professional historian. It's just something he's interested in, but he definitely does the research. My favorite series from Hardcore History is the one he did on the Eastern Front during World War II. I believe it was called the Ostfront series. Not a lot is discussed in most US-based world history classes about that front. The bulk of the discussion of World War II is typically the Western Front and the Pacific Theater, probably because those were the fronts the US was involved in. So the Eastern Front series, I definitely recommend. The other Dan Carlin podcast I listened to consistently was his political podcast, Common Sense with Dan Carlin. Carlin's political views can pretty much be characterized as libertarian, and while I didn't agree with him on I liked how he thought through where he stood and the ideas he discussed. My favorite episode of Common Sense is A Vote for No One, where Carlin discusses the idea of having a legitimate vote for no one. Basically a no-confidence vote, where a voter could cast a vote stating none of the candidates are worth our support, and this would count in an election. As a huge supporter of voting, I found this to be a fascinating proposition. Of course, this would never catch on in the US. It's not in the interest of either major party, but I enjoyed this as a thought exercise. The reason I say I listened to Common Sense in the past tense is because he hasn't released an episode of Common Sense since June of 2017. An idea that seemed to give Carlin hope was that a political outsider could win the presidency and if that occurred, government could improve. Well, with the election of Donald Trump to the presidency, what Carlin hoped for essentially came true. He got what he wanted, and he even acknowledged that. But things didn't turn out quite the way he pictured, and it seemed to disillusion him enough to essentially podfade, or in other words, walk away from his show. I have no plans to podfade, but at this moment, I can understand why he felt the way he did. I wanted to see Democrats passionate about their candidates, and I truly believed that their passion would eventually lead us to a candidate we could get behind. But with everything that has occurred over the past two weeks, I'm not so sure anymore. I am your host, Jay Poole, and this is Potstirer Podcast. Welcome to Potstirer Podcast, where politics, religion, and history collide, and it's not always polite. 
a lot can change in two weeks. In a most recent regular episode of Potstar Podcast, I discussed how Senator Bernie Sanders of Vermont was emerging as the frontrunner in the Democratic primaries for presidential nominee, having won the New Hampshire primary and Nevada caucuses, and barely trailing former South Bend Mayor Pete Buttigieg in the beleaguered Iowa caucuses. But after this recording, the South Carolina primary signaled turnaround time for former Vice President Joe Biden, and then Super Tuesday happened March 3rd. Out of the 14 states with nomination contests that day, Biden won 10 of them, and Sanders won only four. This meant that Biden was able to make up ground in a number of delegates and surpass Bernie. Now Biden is considered the frontrunner. Either prior to or right after Super Tuesday, several candidates dropped out, including Tom Steyer, Mayor Pete, Amy Klobuchar, Michael Bloomberg, and Elizabeth Warren who, to be honest, was my number one choice, Buttigieg, Klobuchar, and Bloomberg publicly endorsed Joe Biden. Elizabeth Warren dropped out of the race without publicly endorsing a candidate, as did Tom Steyer. While Congresswoman Tulsi Gabbard of Hawaii is still in the running, she has not gained any significant traction in this race and has not gone on the campaign trail since the beginning of March. And this is now being characterized as a race between Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders. The Democratic Party leadership has helped cultivate this perception by modifying the debate qualification rules yet again, this time to exclude Gabbard and portray the Democratic nomination contests going forward as a horse race between Biden and Sanders. Imagine that the Democratic nomination race has gone from what was touted as the most diverse group of presidential candidates in years, if ever, to what is essentially a contest between two elderly Caucasian men in their late 70s. Shocker. As you could imagine, I ideologically lean more towards Sanders than Biden, and I voted for Sanders in the 2016 Democratic primary. But at this point, I don't care much for either of them, and I wonder how many people feel the same way. The optics of this race aren't exactly great. Biden using Black American support to push back on claims that he is part of the establishment, misunderstanding why he's getting the support of many Black voters so far, which I'm going to get into later in this episode. His spotty legislative record on race and his continued gaffes on the campaign trail don't help. Neither does Bernie's lack of support among Black Americans, a major part of the Democratic coalition, outside the intellectual and activist classes, and the fact that some of his recent campaign decisions aren't helping. Skipping Mississippi, where the majority of Democratic voters are Black, to go to Michigan. Both states will be holding their primary, along with four others, on Tuesday, March 10th. And then, while in Michigan, rallies in Detroit and Flint, mostly Black cities, have attracted mostly white audiences with hardly a black soul in sight. Yikes, dude. And if you mention these optics to supporters of either candidate, most of the time you're met with anger and defensiveness and charges of divisiveness. The way this race has narrowed down doesn't exactly look positive for the Democratic Party, and the optics will pose major problems if this isn't sufficiently addressed. While it's true 
that Trump is unabashedly bigoted and his administration and party reflect that. Pointing this out doesn't cancel the fact that the Democrats have a love-hate relationship with diversity. But despite these troubling optics, this particular two-man race, at least on its surface, represents the ideological divide in the Democratic electorate between centrists and progressives. Centrists, who apparently don't like being called that, but it's essentially what they are, so embrace it. Centrists just want to go back to the days before Donald Trump was president. Progressives want to address what gave us Donald Trump in the first place, the shift to the right over the past few decades and the Democratic Party that has capitulated to this shift since the Clinton era. Those are two different visions of a post-Trump America. I stated in the last episode that it doesn't matter who ends up being the Democratic nominee. The message is more important than the headliner, and I stand by that. But these particular candidates do bring specific messages to the table. Bernie Sanders pushes the message of major structural change. Joe Biden's message is a return to normalcy. One constant in terms of presidential elections is that candidates who give voters something to vote for are more successful than those who only focus on how bad the other guy is. Say what you want about Bernie Sanders. His message is aspirational to a lot of people, and it speaks to the real lives of many Americans and gives people something to vote for. Bernie supports major health care and education reform, among a number of other progressive reforms, and has consistently championed the focus on poor middle-class Americans rather than bending so much to the wealthy. Whether or not Bernie can actually deliver on his promises is, of course, another question. But much of what a president can do in terms of legislation is dictated by the bills placed in front of him by Congress, which is why the races for the House and Senate are just as important as the presidency. So delivering on goals is not completely within a president's control. Even if you end up disliking whoever gets the presidential nomination, focus on those down-ballot races because those matter just as much, in a sense, maybe even more, than who becomes president. The reason why Donald Trump has been able to deliver on what he has asked for is because, at least for the first two years of his presidency, he had a unified Congress who rubber-stamped everything. Even now, with a Democratic House and a divided Congress, Democrats still have been willing to give him funding for the wall and many of his other egregious projects. At least domestically, a president is only as powerful as what Congress allows. We should remember that every time we visit the polls, which should be whenever they're open. But in any case, like it or not, pie in the sky or not, Bernie Sanders has given people reasons to vote for him. On the other hand, Joe Biden's return to normalcy message misses the mark, and it's a miss for two reasons. First, normalcy for whom? What we need to acknowledge is that while Donald Trump has undoubtedly made things worse, they weren't exactly great prior to Trump taking office. Not great for a lot of people. Crushing student loan debt, police brutality, white supremacist terror, discrimination against LGBTQ people, people of minority religions such as Islam, and people of color, immigration issues and deportations, 
These were happening well before Donald Trump threw his hat in the ring for the 2016 presidential election. The Affordable Care Act extended health care to millions of Americans, not only through the health care exchanges, expansion of Medicaid, and the controversial individual mandate, but also through regulations that required employers of a certain size or larger to provide affordable, compliant health care options for employees. But while the ACA did help a lot of people, it by no means solved all the issues involved with health care, including the cost of monthly health insurance premiums for some individuals and families and coverage of certain procedures by private companies, in part because of state Republican resistance to expanding Medicaid in certain states. Some Americans found the cost of being insured prohibitive, and ultimately, the ACA left some gaps and didn't cover everyone. President Obama could have backed a more comprehensive health care plan, but ultimately chose not to, in the name of corralling bipartisan support that never came. For many of us, normalcy isn't something we've been able to enjoy ever. And as horrible a leader as Donald Trump is, he is a symptom and a consequence, not the problem. If we're not addressing the underlying problems, nothing will stop us from getting another Trump or worse. Second, a return to normalcy is telling us nothing about what Joe Biden stands for, except that Biden is better than Donald Trump. While that may be true, the house mice my cat loves to catch and nom on would be better than Donald Trump, that doesn't tell us what we're voting for, just what we're voting against. And whether you like it or not, if your candidate's message is simply that they're better than the other guy, that is a losing proposition because it centers the other guy rather than your candidate. And people are more willing to vote for someone than against someone. In the push by centrist Democratic leaders and pundits to support Joe Biden, one of the arguments made in favor of Biden is that he will bring in the moderates, the never-Trump Republicans, and those who are on the fence. There's this conventional wisdom among political officials, commentators, and even political scientists that the election is won and lost on the whim of swing voters, undecided voters who could go one way or the other come election day. But political scientist and election forecaster Rachel Biddecoffer argues that such voters don't exist, or at least not in large enough percentages to matter much come November. Biddecoffer, in interviews with Politico as well as CBC News, has argued that turnout, rather than convincing of undecideds, is what decides elections. She said of her theory, quote, In the polarized era, the outcome isn't really about the candidates. What matters is what percentage of the electorate is Republican and Republican leaners, and what percentage is Democratic and Democratic leaners, and how they get activated, end quote. Even with up to 40% of the electorate being characterized as independent, most tend to vote for a specific party. They just don't want to claim an affiliation publicly. So it's pretty much a waste of resources for candidates to focus on convincing voters that might be on the fence. The more fruitful, productive strategy is focusing on getting more of your people out to vote. Underlying Bittekoffer's prediction model is the theory of negative partisanship. Negative partisanship theory was developed by Adam Abramowitz and Stephen Webster, 
political scientists from Emory University. In their journal article published in Electoral Studies in 2016, the researchers found that since the 1980s, supporters of both major parties have developed increasingly negative feelings towards the opposing party, which has led to increases in party loyalty and straight-ticket voting among strong partisans, weak partisans, and even independents. This is also translated to the nationalization of elections, according to Abramowitz and Webster, making the election results for the presidency, Congress, and state legislatures more closely correlated in recent elections than in years past. In other words, Americans are increasingly treating politics like sports, picking a team and staying loyal to that team while hating their rivals with the passion of a thousand sons. Those of us who support the Ohio State Buckeyes aren't likely to cross over to the University of Michigan Wolverines, and vice versa. It's going to take a lot for a switch to happen. Perhaps a full-ride academic scholarship to your rival school. Attending one of those schools despite growing up in the state the other school is located in. Yeah. But why the change? Abramowitz and Webster believe that two factors have led to the increased negative feelings that partisans and closet partisans have towards the opposing major party. Quote, Increasingly negative feelings toward the opposing party are partially a reflection of changes in the composition of the Democratic and Republican electoral coalitions. Over the past several decades, partisan identities in the United States have become increasingly aligned with other salient social and political divisions in American society, most notably race and religion. As a result, supporters of each party have come to perceive supporters of the opposing party as very different from themselves in terms of their social characteristics, political beliefs, and values, and to view opposing partisans with growing suspicion and hostility. Moreover, these negative feelings toward the opposing party are increasingly reinforced by exposure to partisan media, which have proliferated in recent years." End quote. Bittercoffer's election model focusing on turnout based on a negative partisanship theory was key to our prediction that a more energized Democratic base would lead to a blue wave midterm election in 2018. And this focus has borne out so far. Bittercoffer was able to predict the 2018 midterm election net gains for Democrats with closer accuracy than most other mainstream forecasters. The interesting thing about her 2020 forecast is that she is one of a few who predict a Democratic victory in 2020. She contends it's more likely to happen if the Democratic nominee, particularly if it's Joe Biden, chooses a progressive woman of color for a vice presidential running mate. That could engage the progressive wing of the party and better reflect the diversity of a party whose base includes a large percentage of women and people of color. She argues that if the right running mate is chosen, and if they can make the election about the awfulness that is Donald Trump, the Democrats are poised to win the election. I agree with Bittacoffer's central argument that turnout is key. Rather than attempting to win over conservative voters who just aren't going to switch over to the Democrats, there's too few in the need-to-convince pile for it to matter. If anything, the swing voters that matter most will be those who are deciding whether to vote for their preferred party or not vote at all. And I would add that the Democrats tend to have more voters in this category than Republicans. 
I'll get more into the other kind of swing voter in a moment. That said, I do think that predicting a win for the Democrats for president is pretty optimistic, to be honest. While I don't disagree that negative partisanship or a sports team framework where it's the hatred of the other side could fuel participation, the question is whether or not this alone is enough to fuel turnout among those who have political opinions of some sort, but aren't as politically engaged as those who vote consistently. And I'm not convinced it does. In the case of the 2018 election, that was a midterm election, and midterm elections tend to engage voters who tend to vote pretty regularly as it is. I discussed the 2004 presidential election between President George W. Bush and then-Senator John Kerry in the last episode and outlined how Kerry didn't effectively discuss what he stood for and framed the election as a referendum on Bush. And while Bush was on a downswing in popularity from his all-time high right after the September 11th terror attacks, Democratic dislike of Bush wasn't enough to foster the turnout needed to defeat him or even for Kerry to win the popular vote. Previous elections with similar dynamics have turned out similarly. Donald Trump is next-level hated by Democrats and many others who don't claim a party but lean Democrat, even more so than Bush was. And yes, there were a lot of people who hated Bush in his time. So it remains to be seen if these higher levels of antipathy will drive turnout. I don't think it will, at least enough to make a difference in the outcome of the 2020 election. But I sure hope I'm wrong. Turnout is a huge deal, and as people's partisanship and hatred toward the other party has been solidifying, the question is less about who people will vote for, but whether or not they will vote at all. There are a number of groups that fall into that category, but when it comes to the Democratic primaries, the group all eyes are on the most are Black Americans. The electorate overall has leaned Democrat for decades, but as of right now is roughly even percentage Democrats and Republicans. This reality means Black voters are even more crucial to the success of Democratic presidential candidates. Black Americans are a major constituency for today's Democratic Party, a party that is increasingly diverse and now attracts a minority of white votes. The vast majority of Black Americans identify as Democrats and support Democratic candidates. Prior to the New Deal, Black Americans were more likely to be Republican due to the role of the mostly Republican North in beating the Confederate South, which was solidly Democrat, in the Civil War from 1861 through 1865, a war which eventually led to the end of African chattel slavery in the United States. During the war, President Abraham Lincoln, a Republican, gave the Emancipation Proclamation in which slaves were freed in slave states that had seceded from the Union. Because the war was ongoing, this was largely a symbolic gesture and did not free slaves in states such as Kentucky, Missouri, Maryland, and Delaware, which were the slave states that stayed in the Union. Nevertheless, the Republicans have leaned on the label the Party of Lincoln to retain black voters, while on the other hand, white Democrats in the South worked overtime to keep black Americans from voting. Fast forward to the 1930s. The New Deal was implemented by President Franklin Delano Roosevelt 
to help Americans get on their feet and obtain needed resources in the wake of the Great Depression. While black Americans still were not provided all the same rights and liberties as white Americans, they did see some benefit from the New Deal, and so some black voters began to shift to the Democratic Party. This shift got a huge boost 30 years later with the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the Voting Rights Act of 1965, which were championed by President Lyndon B. Johnson, a Southern Democrat. Johnson's willingness to work with civil rights groups on some level during the height of the civil rights movement and to support civil rights legislation led to black Americans becoming a solid voting bloc for the Democratic Party, while many white Americans, especially in the South, which had been a Democratic stronghold since the Civil War, left the Democratic Party and by the 1980s and 1990s, aided by the GOP's Southern strategy, became solid Republicans. So let's talk about 2020. A big question going into the Democratic primaries was who would Black Americans support? There were so many candidates to start with, a significant number of whom were people of color. And unlike 20 or 30 years ago, when most Black candidates were activists, the Black candidates in the Obama and post-Obama eras have been experienced politicians. Experience being relative, but point being, not notable activists such as Jesse Jackson or Al Sharpton. And it seems that generally, those kinds of candidates have fared better in elections in terms of attracting voters of all races and ethnicities. This may also be a function of changing times, where Black candidates and other candidates of color are seen as less of a liability than in years past in terms of attracting white voters. But as we get closer to the Democratic primaries, and as the primaries and caucuses began, all of the Black candidates and almost all of the candidates of color, with the exception of Tulsi Gabbard, dropped out of the race. And this is not to say that Black voters will only vote for Black candidates. Over a century of voting patterns prove this false. If this were the case, Black people wouldn't hardly vote. But Black candidates viewed as viable will tend to energize Black voters a great deal. Exhibit A, Barack Obama. After the first several primaries, and especially in the wake of Super Tuesday, when Joe Biden found his momentum with the help of other candidates dropping out and endorsing him, one of the big stories was that Biden's comeback was fueled by Black voters, who cast more votes for Biden than any other candidate. There are a lot of reasons, much like why white voters choose to support certain candidates. Black Americans are not a monolith. And even as the results of recent primary elections have rolled in, it has shown not only Black support for Joe Biden, but divides within the Black community in terms of why Biden or Sanders would be considered better choices. A memo was recently written by Ryan Pugialis and Jessica Fulton regarding a joint study by center-left think tank Third Way and the Joint Center for Political and Economic Studies using the results of a national survey and feedback from nine focus groups in Atlanta, Detroit, and Philadelphia, the authors sought to paint a picture of the diversity of Black America and what it looks like politically. They found that even though most are Democrats, which is reflected in voting patterns, Black Americans vary in strength of partisanship as well as our backgrounds and experiences. While a plurality 45% of Black Americans surveyed live in cities, others live elsewhere, 
30% in suburbs, and 20% in small towns or rural areas. So the stereotype of urban equals black doesn't quite hold. The researchers also note that differences exist among generations of Black Americans when it comes to markers of religiosity, with older Black Americans being more likely than young Black people, especially the college-educated, to attend church and believe that one must believe in God to be moral, though Black Americans in general tend to be more religious, particularly more Christian, than Democrats as a whole. And they note that not all Black Americans are descendants of slaves. One of six Black Americans surveyed are children of immigrants, primarily from the Caribbean and West Africa. And there's diversity politically as well. 35% identify as liberal or progressive, 31% identify as moderate, and 17% of those surveyed say they are conservative. That said, while Donald Trump has emphasized that his economic policies have benefited Black people and has touted a lower unemployment rate for Black Americans, an unemployment rate that was already declining under President Obama but still lags behind that of white Americans, only 22% of survey respondents say their financial situation has improved over the last two years. That's around one in five. Half say their economic situation has remained the same, and 27% say their economic situation has gotten worse. Black women were much more likely than Black men to say their economic situation had worsened. 80% of Black Americans believe that Donald Trump getting elected has made racists more willing to express their racist views, and removing Trump from office is embraced as the best argument in favor of voting in 2020. The other fascinating part of the study was when the researchers asked the sample what policy priorities would benefit them. The priorities that respondents were most likely to say would benefit them a great deal weren't necessarily the priorities the mainstream media, politicians on both sides, or activists discuss most, such as eliminating voting barriers, strengthening gun laws, or criminal justice reform. Not that those don't matter for Black Americans, but they aren't at the top. Most of the priorities rated at the top to where two-thirds of Black Americans say they would personally benefit a great deal from were bread and butter issues as well as other urgent challenges. These included affordable housing, lowering the cost of health care, reducing racism, improving water and air quality, making college more affordable, creating more higher-paying jobs, and making ends meet with one job. So pretty much economics and quality of life, which tend to be greater challenges for African Americans. These findings are pretty eye-opening, and these can inform our understanding of this election and Black American voting patterns during the primary and general election season. The first three nomination contests, the Iowa caucuses, New Hampshire primary, and Nevada caucuses, either went for Bernie Sanders or Bernie had a strong showing. However, in these states, Black Americans don't hold a particularly large share of the Democratic base. But Joe Biden turned the corner in South Carolina, a state whose Democratic voter base has a much larger share of Black Americans. This state is also Republican-dominated as a whole and is in the South. These factors matter. Older Black voters, as well as Southern Black voters, are more likely to support Biden, whereas Sanders finds more support among young Black Americans. 
most Black Democrats under 30 supported him. There's also more support for Sanders from Northern and Western Black voters than those in the South, yet he is still not particularly dominant among these groups. Sanders tends to have a great deal of support among Black activists and academics, having been endorsed by Jesse Jackson, Cornell West, and Black Lives Matter co-founder Patrice Cullors. But older Black voters, much like older voters as a whole, are much more likely to vote. Hence, the media story has been that Biden has the support of the Black community. While this is true to some extent, there is clearly more nuance to the story. But of Black voters who do support Joe Biden, why? After all, Biden got slammed by Senator Kamala Harris at an earlier debate for his record during his decades in Congress, including his opposition to busing, a controversial tactic used in the 1970s to desegregate public schools around the country. He has also been criticized for his support for the 1994 crime bill, which imposed mandatory minimums and doubled down on a drug war, contributing to mass incarceration of Black and Latino Americans. The crime bill is now a bill that most Democrats who supported it then have distanced themselves from. Even Hillary Clinton has done this, but Biden still defends it. Part of his support among African Americans is pragmatism. As I discussed a short time ago, a majority of Black Americans are not supporters of Donald Trump and want him out in the worst way. Many see Joe Biden, who appears more palatable to moderates and never-Trump Republicans, as the choice that would be more likely to defeat Trump. While there is support for Bernie's economic policies, including Medicare for All and elimination of student loan debt, there is doubt among many Black Americans, either doubt that he will deliver, or that even if he would, that white Americans on a whole will be willing to vote for him. Saying you want real structural change is one thing, but voting in favor of it is another. As part of Biden's campaign, he has concentrated on forging connections in Black communities and visiting Black churches and other institutions. This presence, as well as Sanders' absence, has endeared Biden to those who see him as a visible figure in these circles. Another reason is that Biden was vice president under Barack Obama. And when I say this, this isn't simply the thought process that, oh, since Biden was VP, he has more experience, even that the admiration Obama has in the Black community has rubbed off on him. I'm not saying that there couldn't be some of that happening, but I am saying it's not just that. It's the idea that Joe Biden faithfully served as Obama's vice president for eight years without making a significant effort to undermine him. CNN contributor Van Jones tweeted, quote, Joe Biden stood with Obama through thick and thin. There's a big missing hole for Bernie in terms of his relationship with the black community, and it's going to cost him, end quote. There's a Facebook post written by a black woman from Washington State, Lori Goff, that has recently gone viral on social media that further elaborates on why Biden's eight years as VP matters to so many black voters. Quote, let me explain something to you about Joe Biden and why some of the shit that he's done in his past doesn't matter. This old rich white man played second fiddle to a black man, not just any black man, but a younger black man and a smart black man, not just for a day, not one, not two, but eight years. 
He took his cues from this black man who had more power than him and was virtually unknown when he took the presidency, and Joe Biden had been around forever. He was willing and proud to be his wingman. Not once did he try to undermine him, this black man. Instead, Joe walked in lockstep with him. He respected him. He loved and trusted him. He was led by him, and he learned from him. And Joe did not have a problem with it. You tell me what a 40-plus-year establishment white politician has ever done that. Joe Biden is cut from a different cloth, and black folks understand that, and for good reason. He has shown it. This is what showing up and being an ally looks like. When black people say they know Joe, this is how we know, end quote. To further elaborate on this, many black Americans have had the experience of seeing white Americans, especially in the older generations, struggle with being in a position where they are professionally subordinate to a black person. Due to racial biases that have existed for generations in employment, it's not often that white Americans have black bosses in the workplace. While this is slowly changing, the leadership at Fortune 500 companies are still overwhelmingly white and male. And grievances over policies such as affirmative action and other efforts at diversifying workplaces have led to worries by significant portions of white people that they are losing ground to people of color, including black Americans, that they see as unqualified or undeserving. They may even feel that their black supervisor may favor black employees over them, blind to the implications of how they themselves view race and power, being required to report to those they don't see as earning their position and who they believe are actively working against their interests can lead some white employees to feelings of antipathy and occasionally a desire to claim their rightful place in the hierarchy. With that context in mind, the fact that Joe Biden served as vice president to the first president of African descent, a president who was younger and had less formal political experience, and while doing so, did not seek to assert a Dick Cheney-esque puppet master role or sought to undermine Obama's authority, that track record builds a sense of trust and legitimacy in the eyes of many black Americans. Does that absolve all of Biden's sins? No. Do we have to like Biden because of this? No. But this perspective is worth considering, at least to try to understand why some black Americans support him. It's disturbing to see political commentators, as well as people on social media, accuse black voters of being low information voters or claim that we shouldn't listen to black voters who happen to live in the South when it comes to the Democratic nomination, since the South is solidly Republican as a whole. And as I've said previously, we need to stop looking for someone to blame among groups considered part of the Democratic base or are Democratic adjacent as to why Donald Trump won in 2016 and why he may win re-election in 2020. I said last week that we need to stop blaming Bernie supporters and, paradoxically, Black voters, most of whom voted for Hillary Clinton, for Trump winning in 2016, and look at those who supported Trump, who may be our parents, kids, siblings, uncles and aunts, cousins, friends, co-workers, pastors, the people in our real life. And if Trump wins again, people who chose to support Trump are the ones to blame. Point blank, period. And I'm going to say something else today, and I know a lot of people aren't going to like it, but please hear me out. 
This is for the vote blue no matter who folks that want to call people who want to abstain from voting immature. It's a cannibalistic argument that ignores reality in search of a convenient scapegoat. In recent history, Democrats have tended to perform best when turnout in general is high. That's because Republicans tend to be better than Democrats at turning out their voters. Low turnout tends to bode well for Republicans because Republicans are typically more reliable when it comes to showing up to vote than Democrats. But when Democrats are turning out their voters in higher numbers, the overall turnout percentages are typically higher. If Democrats are able to turn out their voters, it's a good sign for them. Why are Republicans in general better at turnout? They're better at it because they routinely give their constituents something to vote for. As much as we want to lament the fact that the Democrats don't have the same unity that the Republicans do, a good part of the reason why Republicans right now have that unity is the uncomfortable fact that Donald Trump's supporters feel they are getting something out of their arrangement. They did not just vote against Hillary Clinton. If that were the case, they would be peeling off right now since Hillary isn't running again. But they're not, because whether Trump supporters want to admit it or not, Trump has given them something to vote for. Maybe the wall and ill treatment of refugees from Central America, or the barring of refugees from Syria and a number of other Muslim countries. Perhaps Trump's fear-mongering over MS-13 and painting Mexicans as rapists. Or it could be Trump's stance against police accountability in the name of Blue Lives Matter and his long-standing history of anti-Black racism. It might be the Trump administration's rollback on rights for trans people in the military and in schools, or rolling back on government assistance for people with disabilities or the elderly. Who knows? But one thing the Republicans are not doing is holding their nose to vote for Donald Trump. They are voting for Donald Trump because they like what he has to offer, or at the very least, what he has to say. Yet the Democratic Party is pushing a centrist candidate who isn't successfully delivering a message about what he's for, just a move to rewind the clock to the time before Donald Trump was a thing. And centrist Democrats and liberals are out here telling progressives and other liberals who want an actual message out of their candidate that they should just hold their nose and vote for the centrist that has no plans of actually changing things in a significant way so that maybe one day after four years or eight years, depending on whether or not that centrist will run again, let's not forget Biden's pushing 80, maybe then they'll get a small sliver of what they're asking for. If you're not listening to those you need votes from, you have given them no reason to listen to you when you need them most. Is, at least it's not Trump, enough for those of us who see Trump as a unique danger to the democratic process and are bothered by the ascendant fascist authoritarian state? Sure. But for those who either don't see the threat or don't view the threat as particularly unique, probably not. And shaming fellow liberals, progressives, or other Democratic constituents, telling them that they are to blame if Trump gets a second term, rather than Uncle Bob who burns his Nikes to own the libs, or Pastor Bill at that megachurch your parents attend who says that Trump is a man of God, is completely counterproductive. Now, am I arguing that progressives or anyone else 
that might not be crazy about Joe Biden or the return to normalcy angle shouldn't vote? God, no. If nothing else, the president nominates members to the judiciary, including the U.S. Supreme Court, which affects the rights and liberties we have in the United States for years and decades to come. There is a reason why Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell pushed to keep off President Obama's judiciary picks, including Merrick Garland, to the U.S. Supreme Court, because he wanted to save those spaces for a Republican president. There is a reason why Trump got the Neil Gorsuch pick and why a quarter of the federal judiciary is now Trump judges. Even if Donald Trump doesn't get reelected, our judiciary is going to be tainted for decades to come. There are long game implications to where a centrist like Biden or populist like Sanders is better than Donald Trump. So vote not only for president, but down ballot races too. But what I am saying, particularly for those passionate about Joe Biden, is that regardless of if you believe that the current situation of Donald Trump as president of the United States is enough to get people to the polls, we're going to need more than that to get the turnout needed to depose Donald Trump. To win in 2020, the Democratic nominee must make it abundantly clear that they are there to beat Donald Trump and that they have a message that is worth the vote of every corner of the Democratic base as well as the country as a whole. It is key that the Democratic nominee gives Americans a reason to vote for them. Their message to the American people must rise to the occasion that these serious times require. The Democratic Party must do better. Thank you very much for listening to Potstirer Podcast. If you enjoyed the podcast, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or on your favorite podcast app. Go to potstirerpodcast.com slash download and you'll see the links. Subscribing is completely free and you'll get new episodes once they come out. No waiting on my sometimes strange schedule. If you enjoyed the podcast, please give it five stars on the app you're using and leave a review. Join the Facebook group. It's truly fun. And I pretty much reside on Twitter. So follow me on Twitter at PotsterCast. I'm Jay Poole. Let's fight for America's future because freedom is not free.